Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Scott McKee, and I'm joined this morning by Terrence Gray, and we are going to co-preach this morning's sermon. Uh, today, we're talking about race and justice, and uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of tag team this morning. This is the final installment of a series where we've been looking at five of the big reasons that a growing number of Americans have for saying they are done with church. And if you've missed any of the first four in this series, you can find those online. The, the church mishandles politics. That was week one. The church hurt me. The church represses women. The church only cares about itself. And today, the church mishandles race and politics. This has been a heavy series. It has been for me. And maybe some of you who aren't done with church are looking forward to being done with this series. And uh, me too, but these are really important conversations that we're having. These conversations are happening all around the country, and, uh, and we need to be able to engage these conversations. Uh, each critique we've tried to listen to uh, honestly and non-defensively, each critique has been an opportunity for us to confess and to clarify and to commit and the spirit of this entire series, the goal of this entire series, is that we want to be a church, we want to be people who ever more accurately represent Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Growing up, uh, there was a dog in my neighborhood named Cujo. They couldn't think of a more intimidating name for a dog. He was a Rottweiler. And I would try to dodge Cujo every time I went home. So I did not want a face-to-face -face encounter with Cujo. So when I would ride my bike home at night, I looked for the best path. I look after Cujo and I'd go the path that wouldn't lead to a confrontation with Cujo. Well, one Sunday night, I'm riding my bike home and I was about 12 years old at the time and I forgot to look out for Cujo. And there he is, uh, chasing me down, Cujo. And I'm pedaling as fast as I can with my little 12-year-old legs, but couldn't get away from Cujo. He catches up with me, bumps me off of the bike, and I was like, oh, here we go. Here goes that, that face-off I, I, I hadn't wanted to have. And there he is face-to-face -face, uh, with me, and he just looks at me, and he runs home. That was it. That was the encounter. A lot of times the conversation about race can feel like a face-off or an encounter with Cujo you may not want to face off with that conversation. And, and sometimes we, we dodge away from it for various reasons. For some of us this morning, we might be saying, oh, here we go again, another conversation about race. Oh, how cute white pastor, black pastor talking about race. Good job for you. Uh, but I want to do something. I want to see some real action. And for some of us, we may be suspicious of the fact uh, of the idea about this having nothing to do with the Bible. What does this have to do with my faith? What does this have to do with Christianity? To begin with, some of us may say, I don't even believe the concept of race exists. While that's debatable, what's true and factual in the scripture is that ethnicity does exist. God created the differences. Uh, we look back at Genesis, God created the languages and dispersed the peoples. And one day he's going to draw all of those peoples back to himself. But what humanity has done, uh, it has, we have made the mistake of assigning value to those differences. And God never told us to do that. And so uh, that has created challenges that we live with to this day. And so uh, we heard feedback from several people about this topic, and we're going to engage it today. So as we've done every week, we're going to give our attention to the screen, 
and hear from our friends who've shared with us. What made you decide to be done with church? Many um, events that happened around this country, specifically even in my city, um, whether it was Mike Brown, uh, whether it was Freddie Gray, which is, you know, I'm not that far from like where Freddie Gray got killed at, you know what I'm saying? And seeing not only my churches, but many other, um, many other worships response or lack, there, lack thereof, um, was a turnoff to me. And it was a very like tumultuous time for me in my faith. And I recognized that where I thought that it was, I thought it was my flesh that was like enraged by the things that was happening. It was actually like the heartbreak that I felt seeing whether it's the least of these, the image of God, the, the Imago day before them, um, that is being brutalized. And I just did not see a lack of compassion care from the church I was attending at the time. And unfortunately, I don't really see too much of a difference with Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, Florida Castilla, um, and George Floyd, the, the, the lack of understanding, um, compassion or desire for justice in those cases was disheartening. You no, know, a lot of times we try to teach a colorblindness gospel. That if we are serious about being one people under Christ without um, language or, or nationality or race or ethnicity, um, the answer isn't colorblindness, the answer is celebration. If there is a problem with segregation, it's because, you know, we, in my experience, it's whether, you know, we're afraid to have these conversations um, that would actually bring us together. It's hard to have a conversation or it's hard to come, come together, I would say, if you're not willing to sit down with people. So let's have a conversation, and I want to invite into the conversation all of you here in the room with me in Northville and those of you watching from home online. And this morning, all of you over at the Farmington Hills campus this morning, uh, as you've heard, the launch, the grand opening of the Ward Church Farmington Hills campus is next Sunday, one week from today, and there's a group on the Farmington Hills campus right now doing a practice run. And uh, to those of you gathered in Farmington Hills, all of us here are praying for you and cheering you on in the final days to launch. And if you're here in Northville and you're curious about the Farmington Hills campus or if you'd be willing to pray for that campus today, this afternoon, I'm going to be over there a little after 1 o'clock till 5 o'clock and want you to swing by and uh, you can see the campus, pardon the dust, we're still getting ready. Uh, but we also have these prayer guides where you can pray through the building, uh, stop this afternoon, pray in the parking lot. We want to saturate that whole campus with prayer as they get ready uh, for their launch or a relaunch in that building uh, next Sunday. Let's get to the topic of the day. As we talk about uh, race and justice today, we're going to look at three areas, the reality, the dream, and the way, or the way forward. The reality, the dream, and the way forward. And Terrence and I are going to kind of volley back and forth on this morning's sermon, so I will begin with talking about the reality. And the reality is that we are distant and divided. 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in 1963 these words. He said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And now, nearly 60 years from this statement, how are we doing? And we know that 90% of black Christians worship in all black churches. 90% of white Christians worship in all white churches. The definition to be an ethnically diverse, racially diverse church, the commonly understood definition is 20% of the attendees, 20% of the congregants need to be whatever the non-majority is in that church. So for Ward Church to be considered racially, ethnically diverse, we would need 20% of us to be non-white. How many congregations in the United States of America do you think fit that definition for diversity? between five and 7% in the whole country. So we have a situation where many, church, many times the churches have remained more racially divided than the rest of culture. Now, why is this a problem? Why does this matter? It matters because we live in a country that's becoming more ethnically diverse. In spite of some tension, we are becoming a country of minorities. Tim Keller has observed this, the future of Western culture and Western society is multicultural. That's for sure where things are going. It matters also because it matters to God. This desire that we have for a oneness, for racial unity uh, that's innate in every human heart, I believe comes from God. And the Apostle John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, God give, gave to John a glimpse behind the curtain of the future to see the end of history, to see end times. And John recorded what he saw in that glorious end. And this is one of the things John wrote down in the book of Revelation. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, Jesus. John has this vision at the end of history where every tribe, nation, people, skin tone, uh, everyone all joined together in this glorious oneness, all worshiping and recognizing Jesus as Lord. Uh, and of course, very... Uh, very few churches have achieved even a glimpse of that today. It remains a distant dream. Now, there are reasons why this is so. There are reasons most churches don't achieve this. There is simple geography. Southeastern Michigan remains one of the most ethnically separated uh, in our cities and neighborhoods. This is changing some. Likely you see more variety in your own neighborhood. But the racial geographic lines in our area are some of the firmest in the nation. We don't live together. There are other reasons. I've got several pastor friends who tried to start an intentionally racially diverse congregation. One friend I'm thinking of is an African-American pastor, and he had this dream of starting a brand new church that would be black and white. And he told me they bumped around music issues. Some people in the church wanted gospel music and some wanted rock and roll. And today my friend pastors an all-black church. But that was not the dream from which he began this new church. The multi-ethnic church faces challenges over culture and politics. 
And the worst problem isn't that Christians are physically separated on Sunday mornings. The worst part is that we are separated in our, in our hearts. On the one hand, we believe what the Bible says that in Jesus Christ we are all made one. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have made us one. And on the other hand, we have learned that issues of culture and politics and history and experience have proven a real challenge to our unity. I told you before about some of the pastor groups I'm involved in in the city. And for the past 20 years, I felt like we've been making some great progress. Uh, really, in the Detroit metro area, there has been a, a uh, uncharacteristic coming together of city and suburb and of black and white like we've never seen in the history of Detroit. Real progress in the last 20 years. And then over the last couple of years, I feel like all of that has moved backwards. Now, when we talk about multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural churches or unity, sometimes we're talking about the Revelation 7-9 dream. All the ethnicities, all the colors, all the, all the tribes, all, every tongue, everybody, Chinese, Japanese, Asian, African-American, all the nations gathered together. Sometimes we're talking about the Revelation 7-9 uh, dream. Sometimes when we talk about multiracial, multiethnic, we're talking about the unique relationship and the unique divide between black and white, between African-American and Anglo-American. Both conversations are important. And sometimes it's helpful to define which conversation we're in. Are we talking about all the ethnicities or are we talking about black and white? We're talking about both uh, today. But when people say that the church has mishandled race and politics, they are referring primarily to the unique history and obstacles faced by African Americans. Condoleezza Rice has said that racism, she calls it the birth defect of our nation the birth defect of our nation. When our nation was being birthed, when we were being founded, Europeans and Africans came to the shores here, but only one group came in chains. And this leads to some important questions for Christians. Some of those people that came to America in the early days were Christians, and so people wonder how could Christians have owned slaves? How could Bible-believing, Jesus-following people striving for righteousness and holiness in their lives have owned, traded, sold people with dark skin? And there's only one way that could happen, and that is there arose a narrative that is at odds with and enemies to God's story that every human being was created equally in God's image. This other narrative said that people with darker skin do not bear the image of God in the same way that people with lighter skin. Tony Evans, in his excellent book, Oneness Embraced, spends significant time talking about what he calls the myth of inferiority. The myth of inferiority. And he says this myth that dark-skinned people are inferior to light-skinned people was embraced early in American history by both light-skinned people and dark-skinned people and was catastrophic to both. He says, when the myth of black inferiority is accepted by white people, it leads to discrimination and racism and arrogance. When the myth of inferiority is accepted by black people, it leads to victim mentality and a lack of responsibility. Worst of all, he says, it has hindered the church from being salt and light in America. Now, the myth of inferiority 
is going away. It has been debunked. A solid study of history debunks this myth. But the myth can live on in subtle forms. And it sneaks and creeps into our minds and into our hearts and into our eyes and into our perspective and into our mouth in the way words leak out of us. And it has seeped into education systems and the housing practices and into our laws and even into our churches. A great Christian thinker, uh, Yale theologian Nicholas Wallsterstroff, he says that when it comes to humanity, justice means this. Here's his definition of justice. One should never treat human beings as less, as having less worth than they do. One should never treat persons or human beings as having less worth than they do. One should never under-respect or demean them. That's biblical justice, he says. And the Old Testament prophets uh, talk a lot about God judging entire societies, and then God names specific groups of people. He talks about uh, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and the poor. The, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and the poor. Why do these people named out specifically so frequently in the scriptures? And it's because those were the groups that were most vulnerable to injustice. Those were the groups most often treated as having less worth than they actually did. And often the people who perpetuated the injustice or enabled the injustice were just blind to it. And so God says repeatedly in the scriptures, do justice live justly. God created human beings in God's own image. Genesis says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, every kind, every people, every tribe, every nation of equal worth and equal dignity and merits equal respect and equal treatment. God intended us to live in oneness as the Trinity does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with mutual submission, mutual servanthood, mutual delight, mutual generosity. We know this. We know this, but we haven't always lived this. That's the reality. Terrence is going to come and tell us more about the dream. Amen. So I'm going to share some personal stories that I have never shared publicly before this morning. Um, and I'll be honest, when I thought about sharing these stories, I got a little nervous. Um, and I don't share these stories f to throw a pity party for myself, and I don't share these stories to cast shame. But nonetheless, this is my story. So I'm going to share it with you this morning. In 2010, I was a, a college student, and I had the privilege of going on an overseas missions trip to Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Uh, this mission trip was called the Cross-Cultural Project. It was called CCP, that's what we called it, and it was two full months in Brazil. And I felt like, man, I am really living God's dream right now. I'm able to preach the gospel to the nations. Our primary role as college students was to be missionaries to other college students in Brazil. And so this meant a real opportunity to live out the Great Commission, and I was very excited about that. My days were spent playing soccer with my Portuguese-speaking friends and going to homes and eating dinner. And I felt like, man, I was really living into the dream. Here, here are a couple of my friends that I met while I was there. One day at an event during the Cross-Cultural Project, 
one of my Brazilian friends walked up to me and asked me something that kind of threw me aback. He asked me, Terrence, what means the N-word? What does the N-word mean? And I was kind of taken aback by the request of, that, uh, of the young man. He asked me, what, what means the N-word? And I looked over to my peripheral and a few of my white colleagues, uh, fellow missionaries, were snickering and laughing. Uh, they had asked him to ask me what the N-word meant, and I guess they were getting a laugh out of it. And so I went over to them. I said, hey, man, that's not funny. And I don't think they ever really got that it wasn't funny. Um, the trip continued. The weeks go by. I hear one of, the, one of my fellow missionaries who happened to be white on a phone call, and he says, put that N-word on the phone. So he says it blatantly, clear as day. I'll never forget it. I'm like, man, where am I? And is this how this group talks when I'm not around? I already had very limited experiences as a young man, and this was really causing a lot of suspicion and angst within me. Like, where am I? <laughs> we were over here to preach the gospel, and something else other than the gospel is coming out. One night I'm locked out of the house, out of the missionary's house, out of the missionary house. It's rather late and I'm trying to get in. And um, some of my fellow missionaries say, oh, it's a robber outside. Please, please don't rob us. And one of them snickered, I'll never forget it. Oh, I think that was offensive. And I'm thinking, man, I do not feel at home. This is throwing me off. Is this, is this Christianity? Um, and then one day towards the end of the trip, I'm sitting down for lunch and one of my fellow missionaries who, who happened to be white uh, says to me, Terrence, what kind of fried chicken are you going to eat when you get back to the United States? Uh, referring to the stereotype that somehow African-Americans like fried chicken more than anyone else, I think that myth has been debunked as well. I think everybody, <laughs> I think everybody likes it. Uh, but anyways, uh, <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, he, kept, uh, he keeps pushing the stereotype. Come on, Terrence, tell me. I was like, hey, man, can you just please stop? Like, stop it. He's like, come on, tell me. And uh, uh, one of my fellow missionaries tries to uh, mediate between us. And she says, Terrence, I'll never forget it. Some things you just don't forget. Uh, Terrence, how does that make you feel that he's saying that to you? And I said, I was just being honest. I said, I want to punch him in the face. That's how I feel. I want to punch him in the face right now. She says, oh, Terrence, don't be so typical. And I was ready to go home. I was 5,000 miles away from home, and I was ready. I was ready to go. One morning, I found myself journaling in my notebook and talking to God, and I said, God, I am so mad. I'm so mad. I'm done with this. I'm done with them. I think I'm done with Christianity because if this is what Christian missionaries do, this can't be real. And, and, and I, think, I think I hate them. And uh, God began to speak to me in a tender yet challenging way. He began to speak to me in a tender yet challenging way. That's all it took. That's all it took, huh? You came over here to preach the gospel. You were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, you came over here to be a minister of reconciliation, and now you encounter real evil, you encounter real darkness, and you're ready to let it win. Now you hate them. 
And I thought to myself, well, I deserve to be able to hate. Do you, do you hear what they said to me? Do you see how I've been, I've been treated? I deserve to be able to, to, to feel this hate. And I sense the Holy Spirit telling me, you can't be a minister of reconciliation and not live reconciliation. Hard pill to swallow sometimes. You have to some way forgive them. And let me say this, forgiveness does not excuse evil. And specifically when we're talking about the evil of racism, it must be addressed. It must be declared as the evil that it is. And for true reconciliation to take place, there must be forgiveness and justice. These are all God's ideas. We're not leaning into the whole counsel of God when we pit justice and forgiveness against each other. No, God does not set a standard of justice. God is our standard of justice. God does not set a standard of mercy and forgiveness. God is our standard of mercy and forgiveness. And for true reconciliation to take place, you have to, take, you have to, you have, to have both. If, if I break your window, I just can't say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Uh, for true reconciliation to take place, if I break your window, I need to repair that window then say I'm sorry, and now you have the option to forgive me if real reconciliation is going to take place. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. In my case, I had to forgive so that I can move forward and be free from bitterness, so that I can be free to love others because the enemy was trying. He was trying to cause a blockage that would stop me from being able to love others. But the gospel of reconciliation is about bringing things back together, putting things back together for the glory of God. Right now, the nations are at war with one another. And right now, people are in rebellion against God. But one day, the wars will cease and the rebellion will stop and there will be only worship and unity. The nations will be blessed. And we see a picture of this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 3. One through three, the theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. It's God's promise that He will bless the nations. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, people, and your father's households to the land I will show you. I will make you into a nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse them. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise. I just want to hang out here. God promises to bring reconciliation. He, he promises to bless the nations. And the blessing that comes through Abraham is Jesus. One day the nations that are at war will one day have peace. One day the nations that are in poverty, will, they will one day have abundance and they will be glad and, and they will rejoice because God, uh, through Jesus Christ, Jesus the God-man will sit on the throne and we will worship him and we will finally be in this unshakable kingdom, this incorruptible kingdom, and finally we will have the peace and the unity and the justice that our hearts long for. This is the promise, and we see this in Genesis chapter 12. In Revelation 7, 9, we see the fulfillment. So we can look back at Genesis 12, but Revelation 7, 9 allows us to look forward. We get the fast forward the tape a little bit. I want to look at Rev 7, 9. And this is God's dream. This is God's dream. 
This isn't my dream. This isn't Scott's dream. This isn't a conservative dream or a liberal dream. This isn't Martin Luther King's dream. This is God's dream. And because it's God's dream, we can pretty much bank on the fact that it's going to happen. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. The nations will be glad. There will be people drawn before the throne of God, uh, different languages, uh, different tribes, different types of music, different types of food, and they will be drawn together around. King Jesus. And how does this happen? How do we get here? Let's look at Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility By setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and the regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The gospel reconciles things that just shouldn't naturally come back together on their own. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the Jew and the Gentile. He shed blood for the descendants of slaves and the descendants of slave owners. And what the world has divided, Jesus has brought together. Jesus died for every racist act and every racist attitude that hides inside of the human heart. There's a place at the foot of the cross for those who need to repent of racist ideas, attitudes, and actions. And simultaneously, because he's good, he carries the shame and bears the wound of every man, woman, and child who has been lynched, beaten, sold as property, rejected, and treated less than a child of God. He wipes the tears away. He causes the fear to subside. And the prophet Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. And by his blood, he's building a community of people who don't look alike, dress alike, talk alike, or listen to the same music. And that community is called the church. And the work of reconciliation begins now on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Wow, we could, we could, yeah. Yeah. We could go home right now. But let's talk about the way forward, the way forward. And the key words here, the way forward is humble and intentional. And I'll just say a quick word about humble. Uh, We are not going to get far in this conversation if we approach it with defensiveness and, and with arrogance. We're going to have to be willing to listen and learn. And uh, one small step you might take is to read along with us this book I mentioned earlier by, by Tony Evans, Oneness Embraced. Tony Evans, you may know, is an African-American pastor and author, uh, very popular, very well-respected in both black and white Christian circles. And he's got the unique ability and authority to speak to both audiences. And our whole staff is reading through this book right now, and maybe we want to pick up a copy and read it along um, with us. 
if, if we're going to move farther on this, especially, let me say to my white brothers and sisters, we're going to have to lean in and listen to the experience of others. So I'll recommend that. And, um, and Terrence, talk to us a little more about uh, intentionality. Yeah. It's been said that uh, proximity leads to empathy, but distance creates distortion. We have to be able to lean in and hear from others in order to have that real sense of empathy. Uh, it's easy to say, uh, just love your neighbor, but you can't truly love your neighbor uh, if you've never been to your neighbor's neighborhood, if you've never sat around the table and shared a meal with your neighbor, and if you don't really understand your neighbor's story. And so on the flip side of that, distance creates distortion. The more distance between me and you, the easier it is for the enemy to put uh, uh, suspicion in that gap uh, and even uh, hate and all kinds of distortion in that gap. So distance from one another, be it geographical or uh, relational distance, uh, when we have that distance, there's distortion. And so we want to create an opportunity uh, for us to lean in. Uh, there's something called the Revelation 7-9 Fellowship that's going to be kicking off here at Ward. And the purpose of the Revelation 7-9 Fellowship uh, is to create an environment that gives us proximity to the stories, experiences, and unique challenges uh, to those who share different backgrounds and experiences. Uh, we're not looking for experts. Uh, you don't need to know it all to show up for that. As a matter of fact, that'll be great if you weren't an expert. Uh, we're fellow travelers on a journey together uh, trying to figure this thing out. Uh, they're going to be, we're, we're going to read some together. Uh, there are going to be some trips that we take together. And it's just going to be a, a time of fellowship so that we can grow with one another. And so uh, right after this meeting, there's going to be a pop-up just a pop-up meeting in the conference center. If you want to stop by, uh, we're just going to allow you to be able to sign up for that so that you can get information and more details on what's coming up. On October 23rd, we're going to have a luncheon. And if you go to the sign-up today, you'll be able to sign up for that, uh, for that luncheon. Uh, but it's going to be in childcare as provided. Amen, if you're looking for that. Uh, uh, for the Revelation 7-9 meeting on the 23rd. But right after this, in the conference center, uh, we'll be able to uh, meet and greet for a second. Uh, you don't have to stay long. I'm getting out of here too. I'm trying to make the Lions game at one, and so I won't be hanging around long either. Uh, but we'd love to have you join us for that. I want to show you the ethnic makeup of our community. This is based on 2020 census data, the three primary ethnicities uh, in our area, Anglo-Asian and African-American. And uh, what I've done here is pulled the numbers from a five-mile radius of this Northville building uh, where I am today. If you, if you dropped a pin on the building and drew a five-mile radius around it, here's who lives inside the five-mile radius of this building, 75% Anglo, 12% Asian, 8% African-American. Several people ask me about Indian, but Indian in census data is included in Asian. That's the five-mile radius here. Interesting, uh, this is 2020 census data. 2010, uh, this number here, Anglo, was 86%. So it shows you how our community has changed in the last decade. Now bump out to the Farmington Hills campus where some of you are today. Uh, if we drop a, a pin in there and drew five miles around the Farmington Hills campus building, you're only 12 miles away, but the numbers change a little bit. Very similar communities, but 62% in that five-mile radius are, are Anglo, 17% Asian, 16% African-American, and then just for comparison, I put the U.S. averages in the entirety of the United States, 59% people who live 
uh, in the United States are Anglo, 6% Asian, 12% African American. So just know how interesting the whole country, 6% Asian, but in, in front of the hills, 17%. In the whole country, 12% African American, but 16% in that area here. And this is where God has planted our church. This is where we live. These are our neighbors. These are the people to whom God has asked us to proclaim Jesus. These are the people that God has asked us to serve uh, and to help and to respond to. And so uh, we could uh, set some goals around this. I think it'd be interesting to kind of state a goal, number one, that our congregation will increasingly reach and reflect our neighborhoods. And if we do our job of proclaiming Jesus and serving, our church will look a little more like this. That could be a goal. Goal number two, that our church will take a leading role in reconciliation in our region our church will take a leading role of reconciliation in our region and be an oasis of safety and sanity in a chaotic and angry world. Let me say that again, that we will take a leading role in reconciliation and be an oasis of safety and sanity in a chaotic and angry world. Can you imagine a ward church that is as beautiful and diverse and mosaic and barrier-breaking as the kingdom of God itself with every tongue, every skin, every tribe, every color? Can you, can you picture it? Can you imagine Ward Church is a place where people who do have money and do have influence, rather than living in self-absorption or chronic guilt, which is often where that goes, but rather than living in self-absorption or chronic guilt, rather than that, we learn to steward what we have, even sacrifice what we have for the flourishing of those who lack money and lack influence and lack privilege, and have been shut out and shut down for far too long. Can you imagine the God who made every human being in his own image looking down at Ward Church and saying, well done. That is a glimpse of my kingdom and a witness to a watching world. Friends, it, 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 it can be so. It can be so. Terrence, would you pray for us? I just want to ask you to, to join me in this as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. Pray. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He is not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.